Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher, just two techies with a giant ocean between us, talking cloud, llamas, and technology. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode four, recorded on 27 February, 2015. Good morning, Dan. Good evening, Scott. Wait, is it morning or evening? You know, I'm kind of confused, too. It's been overcast the better part of the day. They said there would be peaks of sunshine, and I have seen no peaks. Now, the flip side of that is I haven't really been outside a whole lot. Uh, You know, it's been one of those days where it's heads down, working in the cloud, and so things do tend to be cloudy when you're working in the cloud. Yep, we're a 100% partly cloudy with no chance of rain, which of course meant we had torrential downpours this morning. Uh, a little bit of flooding in the basement, all that fun, usual stuff that comes along with living in such a uh, uh, such a well-drained country. Well-drained's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I know, you know, I've had those instances where uh, water has seeped into a room, fortunately, never when I was actually living in it, but that, uh, that doesn't sound like it's too much fun. The infrastructure of Sydney underground hasn't necessarily kept up with all the things that happen above ground. Um, and I'll kind of leave it at that. You know, that's why we have such awesome drainage issues and um, all this awesome DSL running around all over the place. Uh, it's just kind of part and parcel and comes with the territory. So is it their way of trying to, like, uh, submerge the bugs so that they drown, maybe? You would think that would happen. You know, we were actually in the bathroom this morning when it started pouring and had the window open. And that meant a huntsman ran right in the window, right down the wall and under the sink. So it's a little disconcerting when you're just standing there and the bugs are using your house as shelter. Ah, yes. And for those three three listeners that have turned into six listeners, uh, Scott lives in Australia where they have these ginormous bugs. So, uh, yeah. Um, And as a side note, one of our listeners did give us some feedback this week. Uh, We should do a better job of introducing ourselves. So just as a, a side... You're about two minutes into the podcast. You're hearing this voice. I'm Dan Usher. And Scott, you want to introduce yourself so people know your voice? I'm Scott Hogue. Welcome to the show. Awesome. So anyway, that that stinks about uh, having those huntsman spiders crawling in. I know that uh, they're not something you're going to miss whenever you do come back from Australia in uh, 20... Let's see. You got over there in 13, 16... 2024? Yeah. Um, So, anyway, a little bit of follow-up that we had come in also. uh, I think it was hmm, sometime last week, maybe it was Friday, uh, a friend of mine tweeted something uh, about finding some Dogfish 120, and you know how I love that stuff, and he posted a picture of it, and he posted it next to the case, and I was thinking to myself, where did he find that? And sure enough, uh, one of the local grocery stores had somewhere in the ballpark of about three cases they had received. So I went there, picked up uh, what they would allow me, which was six bottles. And uh, two of those are now chilling in the back of the fridge for you whenever you get back. So uh, <clears throat> much in the same way that you threw two at me, uh, two more are coming back your way. And hopefully, you know, uh, by the time you do return in 2017, 
they're nice and mature, which I want to say it's that three-year, two-year, three-year spot that makes them pretty sweet. Excellent. Keep them in a nice, dark, cool place for me, and uh, I would enjoy that. Uh, I'm actually going to be heading out on Saturday. There's some uh, local brew events going on around the entire country for Australia. Uh, So there's an event uh, kicking off called Craft Beer Rising. So this is all about celebrating uh, local breweries um, in local venues, uh, pretty much for every state. So they, they've got a website up at craftbeerrising.com.au. Uh, you can go in, pick your state. Uh, I'm in New South Wales, so I think I'm going to try and uh, hit up one or two uh, pubs or hotels in, in the Roselle or Piermont areas um, and see if I can find some new interesting things out there. Pubs or hotels? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, some some of the pubs have hotels and some of the pubs are hotels and some hotels are pubs, but not all hotels have yeah 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 um yeah yeah it, it, it's australia so it's like that uh <clears throat> square is a type of rectangle but a rectangle is not necessarily a square got it okay yes everything's a hexagon ah yes hexagons wait what um so some other follow-up uh, from this past week uh the it pro camp went on in the dc area so there were 650 people registered for that not quite certain how many folks actually showed up to the event and all. Uh, you remember the Chevy Chase Microsoft office. Uh, for those of you that have never been to this place, uh, it's, <clears throat> it's in a office building in downtown Chevy Chase just across the line that separates D.C. from Maryland. And anyway, inside the office, Microsoft apparently has multiple floors. I don't know how many. The two floors they have it on, though, uh, unless you actually know to go look, You'll never know that an event or the same event has, you know, courses, instruction, whatever you want to call it, uh, taking place on the other floor. So I was on the floor that did not have the sign in and the food and I was first session of the day. And so it's kind of funny to have uh, five or six folks, you know, initially show up and then probably about 10 minutes into it, another 15, 20 folks kind of poured at the back of the room. And it was just kind of one of those, okay, do we start over? Do we keep going? Uh, but overall, it went really well. Um, <clears throat> ended up doing two sessions, one on uh, good old uh, SharePoint worst practices, which is always kind of fun to talk about and commiserate with some of the folks in the room, but also a session on good old uh, Office 365 and how to kind of get jump started on it. So some good conversation. Uh, a lot of folks, you know, didn't quite know all the different uh, <clears throat> SKUs that are out there for Office 365. So that was good to just kind of highlight and bring to bear for those folks. Uh, the downside of it, though, was they had predicted snow in the D.C. region area to start somewhere in the ballpark of about 2 p.m., and they had said anywhere from 2 to 12 inches. They weren't quite certain what it was going to be, uh, but it, it was one of those winter storms that was coming up the coast. So it was uh, just, you know, kind of a surprise when I looked out the window after my session. Uh, I was talking to Tim Farrow, and I looked out, and I went, oh, man. And sure enough, it was snowing, and it was 11.30 a.m., so it was, a, it was a bit of a trip home, to say the least. Looking at it in retrospect, I probably should have just left my car there at the building, uh, at that Whole Foods parking lot that's huge, and taken the metro back. But uh, it, it is what it is, and you know, after two and a half hours of white knuckles on the road, uh, it was nice to just kind of curl up on my couch and uh, look out at the snow as it fell, so... 
Uh, we've had a little bit of snow here and there last night, a couple more inches to pop down. So the dandruff that I know you so just, you know, enjoy uh, is hitting the East Coast. And uh, the groundhog was definitely right back on February 2nd that there would be a couple more weeks of winter. So hopefully as we get close to March, things will start to even out. The weather will start to get a little bit nicer. You also uh, took a drive up to Princeton, didn't you? Yeah, so I went up to Princeton uh, Tuesday afternoon, hung out with some of the folks that were up there. It was good to see Tom Daly, uh, Peter Ward, and a handful of others. Uh, pretty much, uh, for those of you that uh, aren't aware, New Jersey has a SharePoint user group, meets over at Microsoft at the Metro Park. Uh, it's a decent-sized group that continues to grow. Uh, I think Jason and a couple of the other folks uh, are also involved, but they weren't <clears throat> unfortunately able to make it. But it's still a good group that showed up, uh, went through good old one drive for business. And what usually is anywhere from a 45-minute to a hour and five-minute presentation actually went about almost two hours. So there was a lot of talking. There was a lot of uh, back-and-forth conversation with the group there. And I think they got more out of it than I thought they would. So OneDrive, much the same way you know, <laughs> is kind of one of those interesting little uh, spots in SharePoint 2013, SharePoint Online, that still seems to have some confusion wrapped around it. Yeah, OneDrive's a, a very interesting beast these days. I think we had some stuff in the notes to talk about for that today, if you want to uh, dive right into some of that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that came out more recently end of January, I think it was January 31st, it was like a uh, January 30th, eh, somewhere around there. Um, <clears throat> Microsoft gave us a little present in the uh, OneDrive client for Mac. So it had been rumored that it was around. It got shown off a little bit last year at uh, SharePoint conference, but mum was kind of the word as to when it was going to be available. So I think there was a blog post a little bit earlier in the month where they said, hey, we're going to put this out uh, sometime later in the month. And so it was neat to actually see them, you know, come out and put that out and make it available. So I don't know if you've actually downloaded and tried it. Uh, it seems to work pretty well. It'll go through and it'll synchronize all the documents you've got in your My Site document library or your personal profile document library, whatever you want to call it, uh, down to a mount point that you kind of designate inside your profile on your Mac, <clears throat> and then very similar to, you know, what you've got with your Windows or uh, mobile device. I guess it's more the Windows uh, branch, though. As you make document changes, you save them, it automatically finds them, syncs them back up into OneDrive for business. So it seems to work pretty well. Uh, I'm still waiting for them to add in that functionality for uh, the ability to sync against separate uh, SharePoint sites in their document libraries. So right now it's just strictly the OneDrive for business inside your My Site doesn't quite support uh, any of the other ways. I'm, you know, I'm curious if there's like a plist file or something out there that I can go in and hack to make it actually point at other document libraries, but I haven't haven't invested too much time in that yet. So have you have you downloaded toyed with it yet? Yeah, I have it installed. It's uh, like you said, very very basic, and just doing that really that single library sync right now. Um, it, it has a couple of weird call it issues, growing pains with it. You know, I have some, uh, some documents that, that won't sync, uh, and they come back with some pretty interesting errors. Like I have one right now that won't sync and it says, uh, the file path contains invalid characters or an unsupported file extension. So it's just a docx file. 
Um, it has no special characters in the file name. Um, it actually just has spaces between things. And I shouldn't be running into any path length issues or things like that. But, you know, for some reason, OneDrive uh, for business, that, that little app just kind of refuses to, uh, to sync and do its thing. Um, you know, it, the, the apps are kind of a confusing space. So if you look across all the different platforms, so we used to have uh, on the Mac, we used to have the, the document sync engine. And we can still use that to go ahead and uh, hook up to those other libraries that the OneDrive for Business app can't do. But now we're still left with a OneDrive for Business app to sync. We're left with a consumer OneDrive to sync. Uh, and then we hop over to things like iOS, where OneDrive and OneDrive for Business are combined in one application. Um, but then I can only tie into one OneDrive account and uh, maybe one or more uh, OneDrive for Business accounts. So... Uh, you know, they have quite a bit to do in the experience space to kind of make these things uh, a, a little more consistent in their behavior. Um, and it'd be really nice if they kind of uh, just presented the same functionality across different platforms. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's great that uh, Microsoft is going and, and is offering uh, that unlimited storage tier with, with OneDrive for Business. So that's really nice. You know, we... we uh, we want to give users a, a place to store their individual files and put things, um, but it's kind of useless when we can't actually sync it back and get the data back in any kind of meaningful manner. Um, something I don't know that if you noticed it, uh, it popped up on the Office 365 dashboard um, over the last week. So th there was an announcement put out uh, that on March 27th, 2015, the OneDrive for Business app uh, for Windows 8.1 is going to be pulled from the Windows Store. So that's the, the modern app or the uh, Metro UI app uh, that can only sync to SharePoint Online. That was never able to sync to uh, a, a SharePoint on-premises installation, so it was always kind of left off on its own. Um, but that means that touch experience or that touch-based, uh, you know, full modern UI browsing experience for Windows uh, at least for Windows 8.1, uh, is going to be going away. Um, so, that, so that's kind of interesting that, you know, they're, they're going to pull that and focus a little bit more on the desktop um, and then some of those other platform experiences. So uh, Android and, and iOS and see what can happen along the way with those. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the announcement uh, about <clears throat> OneDrive uh, APIs that were being made available. Yep, they've got a whole bunch of whole slew of new stuff coming out. Yeah, so was, that's definitely one of those areas where it's kind of the, uh, I guess, kind of curiosity of what solutions folks are going to start building toward uh, that can make use of those APIs. But speaking of that, um, one of the you know two of the areas that <clears throat> probably come up most that folks kind of scratch their heads about and they go, well, what uh, what does OneDrive for Business really give me outside of what uh, you know? other competitors might have, whether it be Google Drive, whether it be uh, Consumer OneDrive, uh, Dropbox, or, you know, Box.net, one of those other service providers. And kind of the thing that uh, most people kind of forget about is that if you're using OneDrive for business and you're working inside an organization, you've got that whole, uh, you know, that all that <clears throat> other information about you that's out there. So it's kind of interesting to look at it from the aspect of, uh, Delve as well as for groups. So Delve being the Office Graph stuff that goes out, looks at your connections through Azure Active Directory, pulls that relationship information in, 
goes out, looks at Yammer, looks at, you know, kind of where you're posting, um, but then also goes and looks out at your OneDrive for business and starts trying to put together those social connections. And so it's interesting to see that facet being presented through your OneDrive for business, because I know a lot of folks have said, well, how do I get to Delve? You know, where, where does that show up in my Office 365 portal? And you say, oh, it just shows up in your OneDrive for business. And they go, oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> but also, you know, they go and they start looking around uh, the groups functionality. And I don't know if you've played with this at all, but it's it's fairly interesting to see uh, the experience that Microsoft's using there. So groups essentially is uh, tying Exchange Online, SharePoint Online, and Yammer together uh, in the concept of... You can use uh, Exchange for some of the messages, but you can also use Exchange for the calendaring, and you get a SharePoint document library, and you can add some comments in through Yammer. But it was more or less, uh, you know, interesting to me in the fact that you see it create, and they're only accessible to you in two spots, Outlook Web Apps and uh, OneDrive for Business. So you see that, and depending on what you're actually trying to do, you know, you flip-flop back and forth between those two URLs. Uh, the thing that was more interesting to me, though, is if you look at the group's uh, <coughs> comp, uh, capability and you start digging into it, you go, huh, where are these files being stored? And so you're basically, it's kind of like a meeting workspace, but on steroids. Uh, if you look in the URL, you'll notice that it's creating like a site collection in the background that hosts the information. But if you ever try and go to it, you can't get to it. So the video portal, uh, if you're on first release and you're playing with a video portal, kind of the same deal. Um, <clears throat> you're given this portal that looks akin to uh, what we had in the like collaboration site, uh, the community site um, in SharePoint 2013, but it's one of those things. It's built out and it's uh, very customized. So it's one of those things you don't want to go noodling with too much because you might break something in the code uh, but it's it's interesting to see these evolutions of SharePoint and see uh, capabilities being used behind the scenes to then provide you the solution inside the OneDrive for Business. It's, it's really neat to see what they can do kind of uh, across the stack when they pick all those things up. So you talked about that uh, hidden site collection and kind of the, the, the meeting workspace-ish functionality um, that was lost for a while and is now starting to come back. It's taking a new form. Um, so outside of file storage and things like that, I believe they introduced uh, kind of team or group notebooks this week. Uh, so now when you, you know, similar to when we create a, a custom or a default team site uh, in SPO or SharePoint on-premises and it says, okay, here's your uh, kind of uh, web notebook or, or your, your, your site notebook, uh, you're going to get that same kind of, uh, functionality for groups and, and push some of those things in there. Um, it, it does make things a little bit confusing, I think, just because it, it's really hard to track where things are. So as this group's experience builds out and we have SharePoint groups and Yammer groups and then uh, exchange groups and distribution lists and everything kind of blending into one, it's nice to have that holistic view. Uh, but that ability to track and understand kind of where all that data is living and, and, and what it's doing in the background might be important for um, a lot of organizations just for uh, compliance reasons or even, even just somebody's sanity to understand that 
uh, you know, one document's going here, one document's going over here. Maybe I really want those documents to live uh, in the same place, or I want my calendars and my documents to all be together. I don't want things uh, exposed uh, over in this space where I might not have a hand on them uh, versus leaving them, uh, you know, over in a, a kind of known quantified space. Yeah, I think uh, the one thing on that, though, is <clears throat> that uh, that hidden document library that <clears throat> works in the back end, um, that just, it perplexes me because I tried going in and I'm thinking, okay, if I just go into the SharePoint admin, I'll see it in the list of site collections. Nope, not there. And I go, well, maybe if I go in through PowerShell and tell it, show me all of your site, uh, you know, your site collections. It doesn't show up there either. So <clears throat> I guess... Uh, I'm really curious to see, you know, is this one of those capabilities they'll bring on-prem? And if they do, how they're going to expose those things uh, to the administrators. Because if you think, like, from a disaster recovery perspective, how do you get a group back if somebody deletes it? Is that something that I can go pull from, like, uh, my exchange system, from one of the DAGs? Or is that something that I have to go back to my SharePoint content database and hope that I can find it in there somewhere? Uh, I'd be really interested to see how that's actually operating on the back end. I'm, I'm not sure that we'll see systems uh, like Delve come on premises, at least in the in the in the ways that they work up in Office 365. So there's some uh, uh, so, some some interesting things that happen there because they control that entire platform. Uh, they get a little bit more leeway around what they can do with the APIs and kind of how they can drive things. So if we look at uh, the, the graph APIs and where that's able to reach in and, and actually uh, pull information out of, um, it, it opens up a lot of things. So now I can start to see information across uh, my SharePoint uh, installation and my exchange. And, um, you know, maybe someday we'll have uh, link conversations and other things tied into that. And that's sometimes really hard to do on premises because those are run by different teams. And now we're talking about kind of centralizing infrastructure and getting around some uh, s some organizational hurdles uh, that might be introduced along the way. Uh, you know, one of the other interesting things you mentioned, kind of the, the, the storage and where these things are carved out on the back end. Um, Microsoft also has a lot of control over what happens there. So with things like that video service, uh, your videos are actually being stored and rendered out of uh, Azure Media Services. Um, but it's not within your Azure subscription that's tied to your Office 365 tenant. So we have that Office 365 tenancy, and then you have an Azure AD that backs that, and that's in some type of Azure subscription, whether you've uh, activated it or not, it's it's still there. Um, so you might have a free subscription associated with that, or a, a pay-as-you-go, or, or something else. Maybe you have an EA or uh, some other method to get over that subscription. But if you were to hop over there, you would think, hey, maybe I would have a little bit of control and they would actually be storing these things within my tenancies, um, but they're still controlling some of that experience and pushing things off. Um, so it could be the case with, you know, maybe some of those hidden site collections that they're not part of your, your storage pool and stored in the traditional tenancy because they've gone some other way just for development or to do something else. And it takes away some of those uh, uh, disaster recovery concerns at least on their end, because they're going to handle DR and you're going to have an SLA with them and it's going to be what it is. Uh, and, you know, bringing that and translating that into an on-premises requirement, uh, there can often be uh, a little bit of friction there because there are quite often things we want the cloud to do that it doesn't do. 
that, that we've been used to doing on premises. So sometimes it's actually kind of nice to have uh, that line in the sand and, and say, okay, it, it's up in the cloud and this is the way it is. And this is on-prem and this is the way we're going to handle it here. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you on that. It's uh, that whole mindset of kind of the greenfield cloud that uh, Microsoft can, can continue to build out different capability on. But Wait, hold, hold on a second. You said you agreed with me? Yeah, I know. I know. All right. I, I just want to be clear. <clears throat> yes, it's been documented one and only time. Anyway, uh, so... Moving on, though, uh, you mentioned kind of the, the Dell side of things. You know, it'll never potentially be delivered to uh, to our clients um, for hosting on-premise. Or if it is, it probably will be in some other shape or fashion. Uh, it's, you know, akin to <clears throat> what a lot of folks used to say, well, Google, why can't you just install all your servers here? Well, you sort of can, but not really. Um, you can go out and buy your mini box and stick it in your rack. But uh, anyway, <clears throat> so back to Dell. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see some of the folks that were down at SP TechCon presenting on Dell. And I had to smile when one of the presentations was uh, talking about, uh, <clears throat> you know, folks being able to see what their employees are working on because I'm their manager. And I had to, you know, just smile because I'm thinking to myself, if I'm not actually sharing anything from my OneDrive for Business to my manager, even though in the Office Graph, he, you know, Office Graph sees that relationship between me and my manager, uh, things that I'm working on, he's not actually going to see because he doesn't have access to. So kind of one of those just little gotchas or things to remember that <clears throat> if you're going to go through and you're working in a group environment and you want folks to actually be able to see what you're working on so it can pop up and be relevant to them, uh, don't remove permissions. And further, don't remove yourself from Delve. So there's that one little uh, checkbox that you can go in and kind of set so you can hide yourself from Delve that I think a lot of folks don't quite realize it's there and they don't realize that it's on a per-user basis to go in and shut off. But uh, <clears throat> if you're curious, we do have a link in the show notes that will walk you through how to actually hide yourself from Delve so that your colleagues aren't you know, kind of keeping track of you, what you're doing. You know, that, that whole space is pretty interesting. So I think it's uh, it, it's very confusing if you first hop in and you, you all of a sudden say, uh, here's everything, but it's really not everything. It's the things that I have access to. Uh, so this goes back to kind of some of those principles that, that we've been spouting about for a long time. Uh, so I know you have your worst practices session that you do. Uh, and I, and I've, I've done a couple of those with you. And one of the things uh, we always talk about is kind of having a handle on permissions and what's going on. So uh, are things locked down the way they want to? You know, if you have an organization where contractors come into your organization, uh, they might need read access to your root site collections and things like that, but they probably don't need to get into your HR site and see all the forms and, um, you know, the healthcare that's offered to your employees and things like that. Um, so, so tooling like Delve, um, actually might bring a lot of that uh, a little more forward and in your face. So it, it's one thing, um, you know, when an employee might log in and see something. It's another thing when, uh, you know, your C-level executives and things start hopping in and going, why am I seeing uh, all these different things that are popping up? What's going on here? Um, and, and Delve just adds a whole new level to that, right? We've still got our, um, our ACLs on, on our individual items. So whether that's 
uh, sites, documents, things like that. And as those are exposed in the APIs and crawled and everything, um, all that stuff's going to be surfaced more and more. Uh, one of the interesting things you talked about hiding individuals, we can also hide uh, documents from Delve. Uh, so there's a, there's a path to go through and basically associate Boolean fields or uh, yes, no site columns uh, with specific uh, document libraries. Uh, and go ahead and say, I want this document to appear in Delve. I don't want this one to appear in Delve, uh, regardless of the, the permissioning on it. Um, but, you know, that's a pretty rough experience. That's a library by library configuration. And even after that, once we've got the library configured with the column and we've got all our crawled properties mapped and everything that we need into the search service, then we've still got to come back and tag those individual documents. Um, so it, it's kind of in flux and, and, and growing, but uh, definitely something to uh, keep an eye on. Yeah, and I think a lot of folks, uh, it's going to be interesting to see, like you mentioned, the sea level going in and seeing why do I see all this. That's probably the same story that a lot of the sea levels when they go in and start searching inside SharePoint and start saying, well, why am I seeing this information? That's not relevant to me. Uh, so just kind of that reminder garbage in garbage out and if you don't keep your relationship information in ad set up properly it will come back to bite you yeah you know that stuff's always been important to have in place and uh you know we always want to make sure that things are really up to date and i know uh, i i don't know how it is with you but with a lot of the office 365 implementations that i work on and see um you know we typically do uh, directory synchronization and some other things. So we go through doing ID fix and uh, kind of a bunch of other massaging before we can even do that initial sync. Um, but once we do that, we always want to make sure that the source of truth is kind of latest and greatest um, and, and definitely up to date and cleaned up. And that can actually help with some organizational agility internally because that automatically makes some of your internal tooling better, right? So when we look at things like these hybrid implementations, all of a sudden, you know, all this functionality that we were supposed to have on-prem and we never had because, well, we just never configured things the right way. So, you know, those organizational charts and things like that, they start to magically work and appear on-premises uh, when, you know, we also need them to work up on the other side for uh, some of this Office Graph and, and, and Delve and other tooling. Someday, someday it will all work perfectly. It'll be just like Apple and those wonderful commercials where... where our favorite guy just says, it just works. It just works. It just works. Um, speaking of Apple, though, uh, I don't know if you noticed this when you woke up. Uh, apparently, they're going to announce an event, or they have announced an event for March 9th. Um, I'm kind of curious to see what they're actually going to show off. The artwork for it is interesting, to say the best. Uh, the best that I could think of is they're going to show off photos but that's just based off the icon for photos. If you've seen it, looks somewhat similar to that. So a lot of folks, I think, uh, were thinking they're going to show off the Apple Watch. Um, I personally think it's going to be them showing off that new hardware that we've heard about. And uh, <clears throat> folks have been kind of whispering in the background, murmuring about. So I think March 9th, my best guess is it's going to be hardware. I don't know about you, but that's just me. Uh, you know, one can always hope. I'm still waiting for my mythical... 12-inch MacBook Air Retina um, with no hard drive and no ports and kind of uh, like that iPad experience, but with a keyboard that um, can actually run some of these other 
desktop applications and kind of more traditional workloads. So if they release my dream machine, uh, I'll be very happy, uh, you know, hop on a plane, come back to the U.S., buy one, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, that that would be a great reason to come back to L.A. or, you know, D.C. or wherever to pick one up. Uh, <clears throat> I would say that, you know, I could mail one to you, but I'm pretty certain if I tried to do that, that little checkbox on the uh, tariffs and whatnot, I'd have to put, you know, this is electronic equipment and further I'm willing to bet that there's probably some embargo from an export control from shipping that uh, through the mail. So you definitely would have to bring that in through, you know, something that you uh, brought back with you. Yeah, put it on the carry-on. Not a problem at all. We just kind of go off to the races and, uh, l- you know, l- let it do what it needs to do. Um, so that's kind of Apple-ish stuff. Uh, I-, I know we've got a couple other things going on in that uh, uh, outside kind of uh, mobile world. So uh, I don't know if you saw this, but earlier in the week uh, we had Android for Work uh, kind of came back into the uh, the forefront. So this was announced at Google I/O a little bit last year, um, but now they're bringing it back, and it sounds like they're going to make a larger push uh, to actually put uh, Android out there uh, with a little bit more MDM around it. So let's put some uh, some of those SE Linux. Uh, security profiles on things um, and help out uh, in the MDM space and with some things that are going on there. Um, Looks like it's going to rely on Lollipop and uh, some of that new uh, multi-profile functionality that came along with that. So that that probably actually severely limits where this can go because, you know, we've still got so many devices out there that are um, running version 2.something of Android um, you know, not the, the latest and greatest releases that are out there. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that or, or anything in that space. So personally, I was kind of surprised when I saw that, uh, crud, what was it? I saw some app that was out there and in the requirements section, mind you, this was a new app. This wasn't something that was like two or three years old. It was still in the Google play store it's a new app, and it said something to the effect of requires Android 2.3. And I was just like, well, I guess that's cool in the sense that they've got a very broad range of customers they can support for. But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, that is a lot of hardware they've got to have to be able to test against all those different profiles. Because I know, you know, in this case, uh, the Google for work or Android for work <clears throat> that's relying on capability that doesn't come out till Lollipop. But, you know, that uh, that vector or that uh, area of the platform they have to test against becomes more limited, whereas you see some of these other apps that they're saying, oh, yeah, you can use 2.3 and up. The amount of hardware is just, you know, a lot. So that's uh, something I guess keep in mind. If you're developing apps out there, there's a reason Apple continually says, oh, you got to move forward to the next version just so that uh, – the developer story is a little bit easier to control and work with. So kind of interesting. I know uh, some of the other stuff in the Google world is primarily for me been around uh, when are they going to release the uh, calendar <coughs> um, app for iOS. And I know there have been some you know leaks here and there where it will show an image, but nothing, uh, nothing really where anybody has put a firm date out there. And I know... We've got things like Accompli or, I mean, Outlook that we can go use that'll pull in our, you know, calendar information, which is fairly nice, but 
it would be nice to actually have kind of a native app from Google that would go directly to the Google Calendar instead of having to rely on uh, the device to sync up. So I don't know if you've noticed uh, synchronization issues, but I definitely notice now and then where, you know, contact that I put into my contacts doesn't get streamed down through the fetch that happens every so often to my device. So it'd be nice to actually have something that was native and directly from Google for some of those different service information things. Yeah, you know, that, that stuff's always pretty interesting to me. So Google's pushing the whole material design piece. So they, they, they've got their own design aesthetic for their platform. Uh, I'm an iOS, iOS user. Uh, you know, I have iPads and iPhones and, um, you know, other Apple things running around the house. Um, so, you know, sometimes that design aesthetic clashes um, and also just some of that functionality, like you said, on the back end. So um, calendaring support in iOS isn't always the greatest thing. I tend to use one-off apps for things like that, like Fantastical or um, other pieces just to get me through. So iOS 8's opened that up quite a bit with the extensions uh, and, and, and workflows and action sheets and sharing. Uh, we, we, I can get, you know, myself personally, I can get by uh, uh, quite a bit better with that and... Uh, uh, see all the different pieces and parts that are going in there. Um, you know, I do wish that uh, Google would kind of push some of those things out uh, a, a little bit quicker than they do sometimes. But, you know, it could also be one of those things where maybe they submitted the app six months ago and uh, Apple's just locked it up in app review for some reason. You know, maybe you'll see that article in a in a, in a month or two. So, so those kind of things happen as well along the way. It's probably some guy that just keeps seeing that phone number pop up for Apple. And he's like, ah, <clears throat> I don't want to talk to those guys. I'm not interested in working at Apple. I can't work at Apple. Uh, only to realize it's actually, you know, the Apple app review trying to call him to say, Hey, uh, we noticed you've got a bug on line three of your code. Do you want to update this so we can actually push it out? Uh, we'll see. Um, but speaking of apps, um, uh, I know uh, Mark Anderson, myself, and a couple others have been a little leery of uh, the way that apps have been updated recently for iOS specifically. Uh, I don't know if you've downloaded and used kind of the Word, Excel, PowerPoint apps that are out there for iOS, but when they came out, it was pretty neat. Um, they're up to version 1.6.1, and when version 1.5 hit, each one of those apps was like a 450 meg download. I was like, uh, why aren't they using some sort of updater, you know, component like Squirrel or something like that. And then, uh, you know, 1.5.1 came out and that was 40 megabytes. So I was like, oh neat, they're using some sort of internal app update. That's awesome. 1.6.1 pops up, 220 megabytes each. I'm really curious what this additional, you know, how a point update is adding 200 megs per file and I realize it's not a big deal if you're connected to Wi-Fi and you've got a decent Fios connection where it's 75 megabytes up down. But if you're, you know, on DSL like me or ancient DSL like you, that's fairly painful to deal with. Yeah, it's uh, so Apple has some mechanisms built in on the back end for their developers to help uh, automatically reduce the size of updates for, for their users. Um, especially as now they've upped the uh, the maximum um, app package size. It used to be two gigs. Uh, that's going up to four gigs. So that's going to be pretty painful, you know, with a uh, four gig game or something else coming down and all the assets in it. Um, so Apple actually does has some logic built into the backend provisioning process. When developers upload new apps, uh, they go through and do some diffs. 
um, and they try and look at things. So depending on how developers are packaging things and pushing things and moving everything around, um, you, you know, if, if they're making mods to a bunch of different files or they've added a bunch of new assets, things like that, uh, that, that can kind of artificially uh, increase the, the, the size of those downloads and things. Um, you know, a lot of that's on the app developers themselves. So maybe Microsoft has some work to do in that space to uh, come up with some optimizations um, and figuring out some better ways to push those things through um, just, just so they do get a, a little bit smaller along the way. Um, you know, I don't mind so much on my iPad pulling things like that down, you know, take it to the office. It's already on the Wi-Fi. Go ahead and do my app updates. Um, it can be a little painful to wait on the phone, you know, while you're out and about. Maybe you see the update and, you know, you have this uh, compulsion to get the latest and greatest thing. So uh, being able to pull those pieces through and, and see what happens, uh, you know, m makes it all kind of uh, nerve-wracking sometimes. Um, but there's really not much we can do about it, right? That, that's app developers and, and, and the platform owners as well. Um, so, you know, the same th kind of things happen with, uh, Windows Phone and Android and, um, you know, with, with Windows itself when, when new app updates come out. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always one of those best things when you go, oh, look, there's a new app update. I, I think I should grab that. And uh, I know both you and I, at least on our iOS devices, we use Overcast and we're pretty big fans of it, especially since it can take uh, all the different silences out of, you know, your speaking. So number two thing that we agree on. But uh, it was disheartening. I think it was Monday, maybe, Monday or Tuesday. Uh, there was an app update, and Marco had put out there on the tweet, uh, Twitter feed, hey, just a heads up, uh, I think it's what, 1.1.4 or something like that has been released. Go check the App Store. P.S. You might notice that some of your things uh, get re-downloaded. And I know when he was doing some, uh, some rework a couple weeks ago, that we noticed, hey, look, I'm getting the same podcast a couple times. But in this case, my experience was that uh, he had rolled back somewhere in the ballpark of about two, two and a half weeks. So there was a ton of stuff that got pulled back down, actually all the way back to sometime in mid-January. So it was one of those, huh, I wonder what he put in there from the updates perspective. Yeah, I think that was, again, you know, a back-end kind of uh, syncing thing. So... Uh, he's been taking a look at the the back-end platform that drives a lot of his stuff. So Marco Arment, traditionally a uh, PHP developer, uh, he was over at Tumblr, uh, creator of Instapaper, uh, some of those other things. So it, all those technologies kind of relied on um, either straight iOS apps uh, or PHP to start off. So when he built Overcast, you know, you, we, we tend to go to the things that we know. Um, that we, we tend to be very quick and efficient in them. So... Uh, so that's what he did, and he's been playing around with some other things on the back end for sync for um, the, the syncing engine, uh, Node.js and, and Go, um, just to see if he can get those crawls across RSS feeds to happen quicker, things like that. Uh, so as that logic's changing, it's having some impacts on, on downstream clients. Uh, it definitely really hurt me. I mean, I have a pretty large podcasting problem, um, probably subscribe to way too many and have too many on my phone, um, but that update... Uh, had me somewhere in the neighborhood of like 52, 53 podcasts to uh, sync back up and go through and delete and things like that. So it can be pretty hard when, uh, you know, you listen to that many things and have to go back and, and remember what's happening. 
Yeah, so how many hours are you up to now on Overcast taking out silence for you? Uh, last I checked, I was at 53 hours from uh, time saved by Smart Speed. Uh, and real-time update, I'm currently at 55 hours saved. Yes. Uh, so, yes, I officially have a podcasting problem. So I've been uh, playing catch-up to you. I am at 10 hours, and I think when we last spoke, I was at 4 hours. So it tells you I've kind of kicked things up, and I'm not cheating. I'm actually listening to the podcast. It's not like I just press play and walk away and let the battery drain and run through an entire playlist of stuff that I'm not interested in. And that does not include much hardcore history with Dan Clark Carlin, because I know he has a lot of those dramatic pauses where he'll say something, and then he'll just kind of sit there for six seconds of silence with some sort of, like, sound in the background. You're going, okay. And, you know, it takes all that out. So it's kind of one of those uh, niceties, at least with those, to get things a little bit uh, moving a little bit nicer. So we'll put that also in the show notes about Overcast for anybody that's interested that's using, like, iTunes right now for their podcast, which is just... Uh, yeah, it's not the best software in the world. Others, you know, I know you and I both use Downcast for a while, and I've suggested Downcast to others, but I, I definitely have to say that I've come to you know, appreciate Overcast and the ability to take a, all those silences and speed things up a little bit. Yeah, I'm a full-on Overcast convert. I, I thought it was pretty interesting. We had a couple of people reach out to us and say, uh, why can't we just embed the audio uh, straight on the, on the, on the blog as, as we release things? And, you know, I, I thought in the back of my head, you know, like heathens who just listens to the audio, like on the blog, who, who has time to sit in front of their computer and do that. Um, you know, I, I tend to always be kind of on the move and walking around town and I'm switching from device to device, things like that. So for my workflow, I definitely need a pod catcher where I can download things, sync them up, listen to them on the go, have synchronization across multiple devices, things like that. Um, so there's a couple of nice things out there, but like you said, I'm, I'm, uh, full on in the overcast camp as well right now. Sweet. So speaking of other things that are cool, uh, I don't know if you noticed the tweet out there is probably why you were crashing into bed last night, but Isaac Stith over in France seemed to be playing either at an MTC or somewhere that had a Microsoft surface hub. So I was, uh, kind of one of those, huh, they exist. Um, kind of the cool thing of seeing technology and, you know actually being out there. Maybe that was one of the success centers or the Max or something like that. I don't know, but it'd be interesting to hear uh, a little bit back from what his experience was on it. I know you wrote you and I a little note that uh, is out in the show notes as well for anybody that's curious. Yeah, uh, you know, it's nice to see that percep- percep- uh, 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 perceptive pixel piece uh, finally taking off and uh, kicking things up, uh, you know, as they release those things out and start to... Uh, push them out there. It'll be interesting to see what they can do with uh, selling that to organizations uh, and pushing uh, kind of this, this new hardware and these new experiences out there. You know, it's one thing to say, uh, go ahead and uh, adopt our tablets, adopt our phones, adopt our mobile OSs. It's another thing when all of a sudden, you know, here, buy an 84-inch touchscreen with, you know, 10 touch points and um, by the way, start doing all your pen and input and video conferencing uh, and everything else in it. I think that's kind of a, a tough space to, to play in. Um, it, I, I don't know what you see at your clients when you go out and walk out and about, but I know everybody's kind of all over the place for me. So I'll see everything from, um, from whiteboards to uh, digital Promethean boards, um, but really don't see too many of those kind of surface hub or uh, that traditional, like, big per- perceptive pixel experience going on in too many places. 
Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I've seen a couple of them at the MTCs, but I haven't actually seen uh, Perceptive Pixel anywhere else. So I'd be curious as well. You know, how is this going to pick up and move forward? Uh, I think once Windows 10 gets out there, and once that experience with Windows 10 and the Xbox One begins to kind of take shape, we'll see more and more of them actually being in conference rooms or in uh, some of the different places that folks work. I think uh, one of the more interesting things probably was the Xbox One. I could have sworn I saw out on Deal News or Slick Deals uh, something about you could get an Xbox One with three games, two controllers, and a couple other stuff. Uh, for somewhere in the ball, ballpark of like $320, $330. So that was kind of eye-opening to me. Um, I know there's one out there on Deal News now. Uh, apparently some company called Cowboom that is selling the Xbox One 500 gig console version uh, for 230 bucks. So that's definitely a lower price, and that definitely helps with the you know adoption of the hardware, getting folks used to it, getting folks used to... Uh, using maybe Skype through it, through their TV, and so all of a sudden when they've got Perceptive Pixel included, uh, you know, the I don't want to say the world is your oyster, Microsoft, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how that actually starts to integrate into the workplace. Yeah, I you know, I'm always going back and forth on those kind of things. So things like Xbox One, you know, it was nice to see it when they released it, and all of a sudden... Uh, when it came out, there was the uh, kind of the mandatory connect with it. You, you bought it; it had to come back, come with it. They've backed off on that requirement. Uh, so having that out there, you know, they, they have lower prices and they can push it as a, uh, a traditional gaming console. Um, but everybody is not going to have those same experiences anymore. Uh, so when you talk about somebody being able to sit down and uh, pick up Skype and, and just call somebody. That's going to be the people who either bought a console with a Kinect uh, and they have that connectivity uh, or they went out and bought the Kinect hardware, uh, you know, third party afterwards and, and picked it up as an add-on, uh, which isn't always going to happen. So then you start to get in this place where you have weird experiences. Everybody's just kind of different. Um, it's consumer space. Who knows uh, how people act and, and what they think about what's going on there, um, you know. Your boss is going to go home and fire up his Xbox One and say, why can't I do Skype for business on here? Um, you know, everybody else is going to go home and go say, why do I even have to do Skype on here? I have my computer and I can walk over and do do it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, all gets adopted. Speaking of adoption, though, uh, another article out there kind of hop back to that Office 365 world we live in. Uh, I think it was called something like Office Online <coughs> Online gets even better in 2015. It was interesting to see kind of the the way that Microsoft was putting out some of the different, I guess, things to help users adopt some of the different Office capabilities, mostly a one, around OneDrive, OneDrive for Business, uh, through mobile apps, but also through, you know, Office apps that are mobile. And the one thing that always just kind of presents itself to me when I see things like that is how is it uh, end users, how, how are they going to work with these things? And so uh, a lot of the time we think, well, you know, an end user is going to be able to get to their files. They're going to be able to modify things. They're going to be able to work on the go. They're going to be able to work while they're at the coffee shop. They're going to be able to go through and do all these different things. They're not going to have to worry about having, you know, to be constrained as to where they are. But I don't know about you, but to me, that's almost a nightmare because you start thinking about the security side side of it and you start going, well, Bob took his iPad or he took his, you know, 
Surface, well, we'll say his iPad, or he took his Android tablet, and he was working on things, and all of a sudden, uh, he loses it, or somebody picks it up and walks off with it while he's off in the bathroom, or getting a refill of coffee or something. Um, public service announcement, do not leave your tablet sitting on a table if you're in a coffee shop and walk off. Uh, anyway, so you do that, and uh, it's it's one of those things where I know Apple, Android, or Google, Microsoft, they've gone at length to put in those capabilities for remote wipe, and that's great, but you still also have that problem of, you know, the user goes in, and they start downloading apps, and they start trying to get to resources that maybe they shouldn't be able to. Uh, so it was interesting, a couple weeks ago, I guess, uh, Microsoft put out their Intune update, which was for business accounts. And so one of the problems that you and I both identified, uh, maybe this is number three that we agree upon in this episode, I don't know. But uh, one of the things Microsoft had put out there was, you know, this integration with Dropbox through uh, the different Office apps. And while that's really cool, that that capability is out there that I can go natively not have to have the one or the Dropbox app on my device. I can get out to it no problem. There was no way to really control that except through like the Apple configurator, where you basically put a policy on it and just say, nope, you can't install any of the Office apps. And that's how we're going to prevent you from going out to the uh, Dropbox, which really isn't a good story. So they put out Intune, and apparently uh, it actually allows for the management of apps, which kind of neat. Um, you know, if you've got Intune in your business, you can go out, you can attach that to your Azure Active Directory and start pushing policy down to devices that happen to be connected and have access to your system. So again, you know, it's neat to see Microsoft taking the angle of, we realize that we don't own all the hardware, but if you're going to use our services, we want to make sure that we can at least help you to be secure with them. So uh, I was somewhat excited to see Intune actually have that capability to do that management. And there's a ton of other information out there. Kind of, uh, the Intune stuff works um, <clears throat> with uh, the different apps. So I'm excited to see that start to take shape, take hold. Hopefully uh, folks are able to make use of that. I realize a lot of folks, they've probably already gone out and implemented some other MDM solution. So by the same token, Really hoping Microsoft opens up those APIs for the management side of things with those other organizations. If that means they have to go through some certification process, got it. But, uh, you know, the, the flip side of, hey, you know, Microsoft's going to make all these different things available, uh, take a step back and say, hey, Microsoft's also going to make sure the management controls can be managed by more than just Microsoft. But perhaps, you know, by other MDM providers that are out there. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting that you brought up both sides of that story. So you talked about it's nice to see what they do in the computer space, but you're kind of questioning what we can do on the security side. Um, so I tend to look at a lot of these updates, uh, especially around some of these enterprise-y things, uh, in, in the context of what I do day-to-day. Uh, and uh, I do quite a bit of uh, pre-sales. So... Uh, you know, the first thing that usually hops into my head is uh, when Microsoft releases an update and, you know, they add a new button, um, how am I going to address that question with clients um, and, and and be able to have a story and kind of um, sell around it? So, like, one of the really interesting things that came up, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the improvements to Office Online. 
Um, so they added a bunch of new buttons in there. One of the big ones that they added was this save to OneDrive button. So um, that's really great. I open a document from uh, consumer OneDrive. It automatically opens up in um, Word Online, and then it has a button to uh, go ahead and uh, save it over to my OneDrive. So one of the interesting things or one of the interesting decisions they made on this space um, is they purposely made it so that even if you're accessing a file that you're not supposed to be able to edit, so you send me a link to a document and it's a view only link, um, you know, normally I could, you know, share that, you know, save that down to me and, you know, that, that might add a little bit of extra friction on my end, might make me think twice about it, but they've actually just put a button in the toolbar, you know, even if I only have view only permissions to that document, go ahead and click a button with one click, it's going to add it to my OneDrive, and then I'm going to have a writable copy of it. So that's just on the consumer space and in and, and WAC on that side. Um, but you can see those Office web app components and some of these buttons. Like, I can imagine that scenario, them coming out, you know, in a month or two and saying, hey, let's introduce an add to OneDrive for business button. And we're going to do the same thing. You know, if this document is read-only, we're going to let people save it over to their OneDrive. Um, and, and that's just not, it, it's not a good situation. So there's, there's ways to control that. So we can put RMS, uh, rights management services in place through Azure for something like Office 365. Um, and then we can do, uh, IRM on document libraries. Um, but that story really just isn't great, right? You know, everybody looks at things like that and, uh, usually the first thing they say is, oh, well just, you know, go ahead and turn on, uh, IRM and, um, you'll be fine because your document's protected. But nobody actually ever thinks about the, the process behind uh, turning IRM on. So that's an individual library by library kind of thing. So that means I need to go through everybody's OneDrive for business in my organization. I need to enable that functionality. Um, RMS has some, uh, some, some kinks with it. So if somebody was already syncing that library... I need them through like a OneDrive for Business uh, desktop app. I need them to stop syncing, get rid of everything, and then resync that library. So before they pick up and, and that, that sync client sees that, okay, I've got to pull down documents and they have IRM and let's watch out for that now. Um, so, you know, the, we get into these really strange kind of, um, you know, I build them up to be like nightmare scenarios in my head of how are we going to explain this to a compliance officer or to a document manager, um, you know, within an organization. So maybe they already have another DMS and they're just, you know, working on documents in SharePoint, but now all of a sudden their source of truth documents can make it over to SharePoint. They can get outside the organization and bleed. Um, so there's, there's probably some work for Microsoft to do um, with just the technology in that space to hopefully improve the management tooling around it. I mean, it looks like they're getting there with, with Intune and some of these other things. Um, but like you said, it, it'd be nice to have some of that bleed back to on-premises as well at some point, uh, just so we can work through some of that. Yep. <clears throat> nope. I, I definitely agree with you. Um, so now we're going we're gonna to switch gears a little bit. I know we're running up on an hour. Uh, we're going to flip over to kind of what we consider to be the news. So just a quick run through of some of the things that we talk about on a regular basis, just to kind of give you guys an update. And uh, first off, probably the number one thing that popped up in my news feed that was just amazing today. And most people are thinking, oh, Dan's about to start talking about net neutrality and, you know, put himself on one side of the line or the other. But actually, in this case, nope. I'm still trying to figure that one out myself. Uh, 
Maura, this is Llamas on the Loose. So apparently two llamas out in uh, Sun City, Arizona, broke loose from their handler. And we're just kind of running around. Uh, I don't know if it was the interstate, but it was some highway. Uh, so you can see the video out there. We've got a Washington Post link out there for anybody that's curious. It's highly hilarious just to kind of see llamas running around and out in the wild. Um, but speaking of llamas, um, Amazon also out there. I don't know what the what it is about llamas, but there's a link out there for uh, National Reading Month that they were tweeting. And the book cover that they have on their tweet has llamas on it. So again, uh, I don't know what it is. Llamas are just kind of everywhere. Scott, they're... They're taking over. They're invading, Dan. It's going to be horrible. Um, have you have you had a chance to play uh, the new iOS game, uh, the Altos Run? Um, so it's a little uh, snowboarder, kind of like Tiny Wings. No. Um, but you're 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 kind of in this you know flat 3D esque landscape on a snowboard, um, and your job is actually to snowboard and catch llamas. Um, so they, they were ahead of the llama curve. They, they beat the Washington post to it. That's uh, that sounds wild. You should, uh, you should send me a link to that. I'd be interested in trying that out. I know that, uh, Marco, John and Casey tend to talk about some of the games they've played, but I'd be interested, uh, in trying some silliness out if there are llamas involved. Yeah, absolutely. So it's called, uh, Alto's adventure. It's kind of, uh, it looks a little bit like monument Valley. If you've ever played that, it's got, you know, that, that design aesthetic, uh, going on, but we'll, we'll include a link to that in the notes as well. Awesome. Um, some of the other, you know, little things, uh, it doesn't really seem like there's been too much churn in, you know, the Office 365 PNP or the Azure PNP or the Azure GitHub repo. Um, I've noticed there are things going on, definitely. You definitely see uh, Vesu and some of the other folks talking about uh, fixes and changes that are going on, but it hasn't really seen anything huge. Uh, pop up. I know there was an update to the Azure SDK that we could go pull and download, but outside of that, doesn't really seem like too much is going on. Yeah, no, they've been uh, sliding some things around. It looks like they're going to be pulling some samples that are out on MSDN today, uh, pulling those over into the repo to uh, to freshen things up and, and kind of continue to build that stable. They've, like you said, they've just been doing some uh, some documentation and. Uh, updates around there. Um, you know, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll throw out here, I didn't have it in the notes, but I, you know, I figure for anybody that's still here. Um, so, uh, I would assume that everyone is familiar with the office 365 roadmap, um, and what goes into that with talking about what's coming next in office 365 across the platform, whether that's exchange link SPO, those kind of things. So that's where we learned about video portals and all the, all, all that good stuff. Um, so I've always wondered, you know, do they have resources like that um, over for some of the other products? Um, so one of the things I was introduced to over the last week, um, that I, I had no idea this was out here. I, I don't know how I missed it, missed the announcement for it. Um, but Microsoft also has a cloud platform roadmap. Um, so that provides a snapshot of everything that Microsoft is working on uh, for their cloud platform business. Um, whether that's uh, the, their actual like cloud platforms that they're selling, like the CPS boxes, um, also to Azure. And it breaks out the same exact way as the Office 365 roadmap with um, here's the things that are recently available, public preview, um, in development, and things that they've canceled uh, along the way. So I, I thought that was just uh, 
hugely interesting and great to have out there because, you know, it's one thing to watch things like the GitHub repos and say like, oh, the gee, they're working on some new commandlets and ah, I can guess by that name maybe, um, you, you know, what they're working on. Um, but a lot of those things that are that are out there and coming down the pipe. So like, uh, you know, if folks had been reading that. Um, you would have known about Key Vault uh, and, and some of those other things or Azure Files or Premium Storage um, way before they were announced because uh, they're all sitting out there uh, on the roadmap today. Yeah, when I saw that roadmap, I was uh, I was surprised by just how much it actually showed and how much it went into. Hopefully, uh, folks are actually taking that, digesting it, and you know, looking through it. There was... Uh, one thing that went into preview, maybe it was last week that came out in the Azure email about uh, engagement services, which <clears throat> I saw and I thought was pretty cool just from the sense of uh, you could see where folks were using your app and you know what user segment they fell inside of. So were they an Android user, were they an iOS user, were they a Windows user, and really understand uh, more how folks were using the app so that you could take that back and start... Uh, fine-tuning the app, perhaps, for the different platforms. So if you were using Xamarin and you noticed folks were, uh, you know, using the iOS version of your app in a certain way and you are kind of sitting there going, well, that's weird. Why, why do they tap through it in that fashion? Uh, you'd be able to figure out that, oh, they're tapping through it in that fashion because the way that we have the Xamarin forms, you know, wired up uh, aren't necessarily the most elegant of ways. So... It is, it is neat to see that entire cloud picture story out there, though, that encompasses uh, more than just, uh, you know, what folks probably common, commonly think of as cloud. Yeah, so that, that's just another acquisition that they had, right? The, the mobile, uh, mobile engagement uh, that just came out in public preview. So they bought a company um, back in May of last year called Captain, or Captain, um, you know, they had Two, two P's in their captain. Um, and they were just a push analytics uh, provider. Um, so that's it. You know, they acquired that company, they pushed it over, um, and they just kind of turn it on as is. They do a little bit of rebranding. Um, they've been doing this all over the place uh, for Azure. You know, they find these really interesting companies, they pick them up, uh, and they push them out there. Um, so we've seen this before for uh, API management, uh, we've also got it with uh, some of the, the in-mage tooling uh, around doing uh, those kind of uh, machine migrations, the P2Vs and things like that. Um, so, you know, very interesting to see how that team can be uh, so agile, uh, incorporate these new companies very quickly, turn around, spin them up, turn on the functionality um, and start presenting that out to end users. So what you're saying is really it's all about integrating all the other products out there. Yes, uh, Azure is going to rule the world someday. Uh, you know, you can see Scott Guthrie sitting on his uh, sitting on his throne with his crown and a couple of dragons behind him. <laughs> nice. But he would still have his red polo on. So of course, all would be right with the world. Gotta have the red polo. Even even the Connect events this past uh, two years that I've been up to in New York, red polo. Everybody else suits. Scott. Red Polo. Um, so I think uh, the only other thing that I had in the show notes that perhaps we wanted to talk about was with regard to the MCSE SharePoint. Um, I know, you know, I got mine through the MCSA Office 365, but originally the only path to get there was through 
uh, taking that upgrade exam or taking the three exams independently for Windows Server 2012 and then 2012 R2 uh, after, I guess what, March something last year. So I was just kind of curious uh, how you're doing with that and if you're taking advantage of the second shot stuff they've got available. Uh, put me on the spot. Um, Sorry. So, <laughs> yeah, so last year uh, we purchased a uh, big block of vouchers uh, for the office, kind of for all of us to use. Um, I took a number of tests last year. I, I failed a number of tests, actually. So um, at this point, all I need is that 417 exam, and then uh, I would be all set. Uh, for the life of me, I cannot seem to pass it. Uh, you know, I've read every book that's out there. Uh, I, you know, I, I think in my head, I've got the practical application to get there. Um, all the other things, but I've actually, I, I've failed the 417 exam four times now. Uh, so I kind of gave up on that route and I'm going to go back and take the individual exams. So I believe that's the, the 410, 411, 412, something like that. Um, so I'm going to have to take the longer path through testing, uh, which is actually going to hurt me, I think quite a bit more. Uh, coming from that SharePoint side of things um, and being uh, less close to the kind of the, the kind of uh, nitty gritty of, of Windows Server and deployments, um, you know, there's a lot of things that I haven't had to touch or worry about uh, that those individual exams touch on that, that the kind of like upgrade exams didn't. Um, so we'll see what happens along the way there. Um, I've had a lot of fun lately taking some of the AWS certifications. Uh, that stuff tends to be a little newer, a little more interesting to me. Um, so, I, you know, I, I've got a pretty good handle on, on the Azure space and, and what's going on there. And I got a good handle on the SharePoint exams. And, you know, like I said, the, the, the Windows Server exams are something that are either going to have to, I think they're just going to have to kind of uh, come with time and, you know, maybe I keep plugging away and taking one every three months or so to um, see if I've finally acquired that knowledge that, that they want me to have along the way. Yeah, probably the one thing that's going to hurt for me um, has more just along the lines of, uh, and we talked about this a while back, but just, you know, the exams get published and then the nomenclature changes that we're used to. And so folks are referring to things like org IDs and the tests, but they're really work IDs because Microsoft decided to change the nomenclature for them so that folks would uh, be able to use them more easily in common you know, literature and whatnot. But uh, I know when I was taking like the Office 365 exams for when it was still 2010, uh, I was taking them in 2013. And so the new stuff had already shipped and I very, you know, I hadn't played with the Office 2010 stuff all that much. So it was somewhat uh, I wanted to cry because uh, the exams were referring to stuff, technology that really didn't exist anymore. And so it was one of those where, and you know, we're probably, I ran into this on the 2012 exam too uh, for 417. I remember I took it and there was speaking about some technology thing and I was like, well, that's, that's not an R2, huh? Weird. Um, and Likewise, the week after, you know, I failed it the first time. I was like, oh, I'll go back and take it again. I'm sure I can pass it. I'll study my butt off. And, uh, you know, the next week I went back and took it again. And the, all the exam questions were completely different because they upgraded it from 2012 to 2012 R2. And I was just like, ah. And unfortunately, there was no free second shot at the time. So, uh, you know, hopefully that uh, that pathway to getting the exams for 4, 10, 11, and 12 
uh, isn't too painful. Um, again, I think we're both kind of in that same boat where we feel like we've got the practical application and knowledge, but just not uh, those questions are just semi-tricky. So anyway, that's I think that's all we've got today, unless you wanted to hop into some of the other topics. Uh, we can save those for next week, maybe? No, let's save them for next week. All right. You want to button this up? Let's button it up, Dan.